Stories of Communism 45, The Heights of Absurdity. Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we discuss what life is really like for those unfortunate enough to live under communist or socialist governments. Recording from the suburbs of Wichita, Kansas, this is Eric Seligman, your host, along with co-host Manuel Castaneda in Oregon. Today we're going to be talking about a very unusual novel, The Yawning Heights, by Russian dissident philosopher and sociologist Alexander Zinoviev. Published in the 1970s, this immense work is a mix of satire, philosophy, and social analysis. It differs from a lot of our discussions in this podcast in that it focuses on how communism affects the lives of artists, writers, and professors, drawing from Zinoviev's own experiences as a a chair in logic at the Soviet Academy of Sciences. While jockeying for political position and trying to rationalize and understand their own behavior, they have long discussions about social laws that ultimately trap them in a self-perpetuating system. The Yawning Heights is structured as a sequence of vignettes in the lives of the circle of intellectuals interspersed with long passages of philosophy or social analysis purportedly written by some of the characters. It takes place in a fictional land called Ibansk, where every citizen is named Ivan, Ivanich, Ivanov. To tell them apart, they're usually referred to by nicknames like schizophrenic, artist, dauber, truth-teller, etc. Some are obvious stand-ins for real-life figures. Boss is clearly Joseph Stalin. Hogg is his successor, Nikita Khrushchev, and Truth Teller represents author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who exposed the horrors of the Gulag. An early passage from the book gives a feeling for Zinoviev's cynical sense of humor, as well as the corruption of the sciences, which becomes a constant theme throughout. All our scientists claim, and many foreign scientists accept, that the inhabitants of Ibansk are a whole head taller than everybody else, not by reason of any reactionary biological superiority, but because of progressive historic conditions in which they live and the correctness of the theory for which they have been the guinea pigs, and thanks, too, to the wisdom of the leadership which has guided them so brilliantly. For this reason, the people of Ibansk do not live in the old-fashioned and commonplace sense of the word as it is applied to other people in other places. The Ibanskians do not live, but carry out epic-making experiments. They carry out these experiments even when they know nothing about them and take no part in them, and even when the experiments are not taking place at all. This book is devoted to the examination of one such experiment. The experiment was dreamed up by the Institute for the Prophylaxis of Stupid Intentions and carried out under the supervision of the Brainwashing Laboratory, written up in the Fundamental Journal and was supported by an initiative from below. The experiment was approved by the leader, his deputies, his assistants, and by everybody else, except for a few holding mistaken opinions. The aim of the experiment was to detect those who did not approve of its being carried out and to take appropriate steps. There are many parts of the book where Zinoviev takes savage aim at the corruption of the practice of science under communist leadership. Here's one classic example, a passage likely inspired by the worthless agricultural methods once promoted by Stalin's favorite scientist, Trofim Lysenko. In advance, a science which enjoyed a great flowering was that of metology. To be fair, it should be said that initially things didn't go too well. They made life quite impossible for the Ibanskians. Things had to be put right. So in their place, the great veterinarian was appointed. He was quite incredibly stupid and tongue-tied. The Ibanskians said he couldn't tell Gogol from Hegel, Hegel from Babel, Babel from Cable, Cable from Bagel, Bagel from Table, but he came from the right social background and had views which fitted in at the time in question. So he quickly made up for lost time. Relying on the work done by the founders of this branch of science, he began on the wide-open spaces of the Ibanskian wasteland to carry out his famous experiments on crossing watermelons with maize and he achieved remarkable results. In the outskirts of the city of Ibansk, cows were exterminated. Milk began to come from powder and meat from abroad. 
He also continually pokes fun at the effort to create positive external appearances without any sense of internal order, direction, or purpose. After historic experiments, the village of Abansk was transformed. The former school building was redesignated the Associate Department of the Institute. The laboratory was rebuilt and clad in steel and glass. Now from an observation platform, the tourists who flew into Abansk in a never-ending stream can convince themselves with their own eyes that the false rumors that have reached them are the purest slander. So the tourists should have something to look at during the time they had free from visits to model factories. Around the hotel, ten new picturesque churches of the 10th century and earlier were built. Their walls were adorned with ancient frescoes by the artist himself, who painted a portrait of the leader in the foreground. He was awarded prizes, decorations, and titles for his work. In the main fresco, artists painted the leader and his deputies, who for this were awarded prizes, while the leader himself got two, one for the one thing, the other for the other. As a result, food prices were lowered, which meant that they nearly doubled, instead of rising by 5%, as they did outside of Ansk. The Ibanuchka River was dammed. It overflowed, flooded a potato field, the former pride of the Abanskians, and swelled into a lake, the present pride of the Abanskians. And for this, all the inhabitants, with one or two exceptions, were decorated. The facade of the building is decorated with 900 columns of every order known to world architecture, and on the roof, a multitude of towers reaches towards the sky, blending into a unified whole, a perfect reproduction of the inimitable domes of the Church of Iban the Blessed. Overcome by so much beauty, Ibanov, the world-famous engineer of human souls, produced this high-flown sentence in the editorial of the biannual journal Dawn of the Northeast. In the presence of such unearthly beauty, one can only stand to attention and bear one's head. His namesake Ibanov, an officer cadet, happened to glance at the aesthetic aspect of the building, which in his erroneous opinion was completely unsuited to normal human life, and, warily examining the three-story high statue of the leader, whispered to his old friend, Cadet Ibanov, As far as the number of columns per head of population goes, we have overtaken even the Greeks. Now we are the leading columnial power in the world. His friend reported this conversation to the appropriate authorities, and the fate of the slanderer was decided before taps were sounded that evening. He was carried away to a nasty cold cell. More bureaucratic bungling is highlighted in the discussion of a trip abroad, one of the ultimate rewards for the most politically favored intellectuals. When they reached their destination, it transpired that Thinker was the only one who knew any foreign languages, and not the ones which were needed, in fact precisely the reverse. To do him justice, those he knew, he knew perfectly adequately. They were instructed to buy vodka to ensure a friendly atmosphere. Then the delegation was split in two, each half being instructed to keep an eye on the other. The success of the delegation exceeded all expectations. It produced 500 denunciations, 800 devastating speeches, 5,000 critical observations, and 20,000 disparaging rejoinders. There are many long, complex passages about social laws which seem to compel these kinds of behaviors and results even when each individual realizes how absurd they are. These sections of the book can be difficult reading, partly satirical and partly very serious, but form a very pointed critique of the entire communist system. Zinoviev pokes fun at the fact that he doesn't use the words Soviet Union or communism anywhere in the book, yet it's obvious to any reader what he's criticizing. When he had read this extract from Schizophrenic's manuscript, sociologists said to Dauber that Schizophrenic would get into really hot water for it. Whatever for? asked Dauber in surprise. What do you mean, what for? replied sociologist, no less surprised. This is all about us and our society. There isn't a word here that says it's about us, observed Dauber. Our bosses are no fools, said sociologist. Hypocrisy, oppression, disinformation, waste, and so on. A babe in arms would recognize who that's all about. And sociologist told a story of a man who shouted, arrogant blockhead. 
and was arrested for insulting the leader, even though he protested that it was his workmate he had in mind. Come off it, you and your workmate, he was told. Everyone knows who the arrogant blockhead must be. But that's not legal, cried Dauber, to charge a man with slandering us just because someone decided that his words could be applied to us. What's legality got to do with it, exclaimed sociologist. This manuscript will be assessed by an expert, and only man who will produce the desired conclusion will be nominated as an expert. Zinoviev often makes fun of the fragile egos of the self-contradicting intellectuals who try to convince themselves that their successes result from actual merit, while their failures are caused by undeserving enemies. Thinker knew that he was the most intelligent and educated person in the Basque. He had a job on the journal and was pleased about that, since most people weren't as well-placed as he was. But at the same time, he was dissatisfied, for there were other people with better jobs. Insofar as everyone who didn't have a job as good as his was more stupid than he was, he thought his position perfectly justified. But insofar as all those who had jobs superior to his were also more stupid than he was, he felt himself unjustly passed over. He knew perfectly well that if he were more stupid, he would have a better job. Because of this, he was filled with rending self-pity and came to the point of despising even more the inhabitants of Abansk, who fully deserved this scorn because of all their former history. Sometimes Thinker wrote orthodox but inept articles. The occasions when they appeared became high days and holidays for the thinking part of the Abansk population. Everyone could see with their own eyes how outstandingly courageous Thinker was, Thinker, who was the first to refer to the historic speeches of the new leader, and erased to a record number his total of references to them. I think the novel is at its most poignant when it's discussing the suffocating effects of the system on the lives of the characters who do actually have some merit, probably based on unfortunate friends and colleagues that Zinoviev knew in real life. A prime example is the situation of Dauber, an artist who everyone recognizes as brilliant and talented, though he's barely recognized by the authorities and just scraping by, as opposed to his politically favored but untalented friend artist. By the way, Dauber is an obscure English word referring to an unskilled artist, in case you didn't pick up on the ironic names. Artist and Dauber had been students together, and had been close friends. Once Dauber said jokingly that there was really only one rule in art, the higher place the arse you licked, the better artist you were. You can't be a great artist if you're not painter to the king. Artists took the joke seriously, and soon their paths in art and life divided, although they remained on friendly terms. His outstanding successes led to artists being awarded prizes, elected to academies, and finally given an appointment. His portrait of advisor brought him a flat. His villa came from his portrait of assistant. His portrait of deputy's wife yielded him a car. When he painted deputy, he got a trip abroad. For his second portrait of the leader, he was awarded the entire three-year allocation of studio funds for his own studio alone. For his portrait of assistant, he was given his own exhibition, open round the clock with no admission charge. Yet artists would have felt happier had it not been for the existence of Dauber. At his own expense and after great difficulty, Dauber found himself a tiny attic to use as a studio. And from time to time, working in complete anonymity, he turned something out, but not without scandals and rows. Artists got to hear some stupid rumors which he didn't want to believe. He well knew what our art was about and who our true artists were. Finally, some dubious intellectuals began to agitate for an exhibition of Dauber's work. A commission was set up under the chairmanship of artists. The commission ruled against a one-man show. But since the winds of change were beginning to blow, even through the spheres of cultural control, they decided to set up a new commission to examine the possibility of showing one of Dauber's more suitable works a general exhibition of the works of amateur old-age pensioners and folk art clubs. When Dauber's invited to chat with a high-ranking official, deputy, who also appears to be an admirer of his work, he just ends up with further obstacles. 
Even his own friends are more concerned with following the party line than with helping him. He said, I value your work and I could authorize you mounting an exhibition. Go ahead, I said, it won't cost you anything. There's no point, he said. No matter what I do, nothing will come out of it. You know our system. I do, I said. Artists always need the protection of the powerful. On its own, real art is defenseless. Without your protection, they'll make a meal out of me. Even with my protection, he said, they'll gobble you up just the same. When Dauber was invited to take part in the Jubilee quarterfinal exhibition for untalented artists of the first early middle age division, he was beside himself with delight. At last, there you are, he said to Slanderer. Even here, something can be done. I am an optimist. Oh, well, we'll see, said Slanderer. Dauber sent more than a hundred magnificent engravings to the selection committee. They were all rejected, and he was asked to submit something similar. Finally, they accepted one tiny etching which Dauber considered a failure and which he was going to tear up. A friend of Dauber's, who was organizing the exhibition, put the etching in the darkest corner beyond the many great works by artists. What have you done? cried Dauber angrily. And you shoved me somewhere almost out of sight. Friend got angry in his turn. How conceited can you get? he said. The leader himself visited the exhibition. Behind artists' powerful canvases showing the leader in the front line, the leader posing beside a steam hammer, the leader visiting a modern rat breeding station, the leader saving a neighboring nation from the danger of backsliding, as well as other aspects of our busy and colorful life, he did not immediately notice Dauber's pathetic etching. It was hard to tell if it was a representation of a finger, a phallus, or a chromosome in the grip of sudden madness. The leader disliked the etching. Our people feel no need of this kind of thing, he said, because our people need something quite different. That evening, a special commission was set up to organize the struggle with Dauber and those like him. The commission included artist, writer, friend, thinker, and colleague. Thinker delivered a speech on false orientations. Colleague told the latest funny stories about the leader. And artist formulated a resolution that Dauber's works were of no value and should be destroyed to avoid harmful consequences, and that Dauber himself should be regarded as having no existence, since there could in principle be no such monstrous deviation among our people. The resolution was adopted unanimously. Afterwards, colleague and thinker went to see Dauber, drank a bottle of his vodka, borrowed a hundred rubles to the end of the month, ridiculed the other members of the commission, and spent a long time trying to persuade Dauber to fix them up with some girls. Of course, all Dauber's and artist friends know who has the real talent, including artist himself. But even when seeking direct guidance from Dauber's success, artist's own lack of talent cannot be concealed. Artist salvaged a few of Dauber's engravings from destruction and took them back to his own studio. He decided to copy some which were more or less tolerable. But whatever he tried to draw, a finger, a penis, a nose, a woman's arse, a crankshaft, it always turned into a portrait either of the leader, or of deputy, or in the best cases of a high-yield milch cow praised in a newspaper article. Writer said on this account that artists had a very healthy inner core, and however hard he tried, he could never turn himself into some kind of impression-expert-surrealist. Slander said they weren't even able to steal properly, these people, because they didn't know the right thing to steal. Some of Dauber's sculptures were melted down and turned into saucepans and smoothing irons, and the rest were slung out onto the rubbish tip. Afterwards, young and progressive artists were pleased not to be aware of the existence of Dauber, who had never existed and could never exist in the culture of the bats because of its general state of health, chiseled off lumps of stone from Dauber's sculptures and carved from them little unknown monsters. These monsters reminded the members of the commission of something they'd once seen long in the past, but they were nevertheless allowed to exhibit them. As our final quote from this all-too-brief collection, let's look at one more moment of absurd dark humor when the characters discuss why the events in the book are not quite as unbearable as they might sound. 
What a joy it is, said Schizophrenic, that we are all fictitious characters. We can talk about suffering without experiencing hunger, cold, or pain. We can talk about the discomfort of life without having to repair a tap, hunt for bedbugs, or complain about noisy neighbors. Yes, said Chatterer, we're very lucky that we have no real existence. Besides, we can make discoveries without having to worry about publishing our books or getting our fees. We can produce masterpieces without suffering sordid arguments about getting them exhibited. This does have a certain charm and beauty of its own. This is certainly a different episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we've been sort of focusing on sort of the day-to-day lives of normal people, right? And then this is sort of a story about life in intellectual circles among important people in some sense. They somehow have found a way to express their true feelings by writing and and uh, hiding befi- behind characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Though, though it is interesting, you know, it, reading the novel, you know, at first I was thinking that Zenovia was trying to find a way to get it sort of acceptable in the Soviet Union, right, by not explicitly mentioning any names or even mentioning communism. But then I got to that chapter where he actually makes fun of that fact and uh, points out that it's kind of obvious what he's talking about. Yes, and (laughs) I think we can pretty much, you and I can do the same thing, uh, write something silly about our own government officials, and we know exactly who we're talking about. Yeah, what, what, yeah. Whether it's a statement about arrogance or a statement <laughs> about a corruption, and we would know who we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, it's true. But actually, you know, speaking of relating it to our own government, you know, one thing struck me as I was reading about the story of Artist and Dauber. You know, we, we had this situation where there was this Dauber, right, this talented guy who could succeed on his own, and then other people like artists who basically depended entirely on approval of authorities for their success, but yet artists deep down knew that, you know, he didn't really deserve his success as much as Dauber, and I think the fact that it was nagging at him was really, um, you know, something that led to all the negative things he did to, to his former friend. But um, it it occurred to me as I was reading that, that this sort of jealousy of success, in some ways, of course, applies in left-wing circle in Western countries right now. And it brought back to me the story of your run for state representative about uh, 10 or so years ago. Oh, yes. Because I remember that when you were running, of course, we thought that since you were someone who came in with no big education and major, you know, Ivy League colleges, um, nothing you know, super in your background that would say that you would lead to government-approved success, but then you sort of discovered needs in society, the landscaping and um, shoring up uh, properties on hills and things like that that nobody was meeting and you ended up succeeding right and building a company on your own and we thought that that story would really resonate with all these left-wing people in Oregon who claim that they want immigrants to come in succeed but the fact that you succeeded sort of on this 
independent route instead of getting an, you know, approved degree and joining some government position as an advocate for Hispanic stuff. Um, I think that rubbed people the wrong way, right? Because we saw in the focus groups that people said, oh, wait, he's this immigrant who came in and succeeded? Uh, no, that can't happen. He doesn't even have a college degree. And <laughs> That is true. <laughs> and some of them said, he seems too young to be able to do that. And, of course, I wasn't that young. I was 40-something years old, but uh, <laughs> it is so true. Um it's very interesting. I think that's why these writers are able to get through people because they they know how to put this these consequences, these events that are happening around us in a way that we can understand them. Or in this case, we can actually laugh about it, you know, <laughs> because we know exactly what they're talking about, even though they are supposedly writing about something um, fictitious, which we know it really kind of isn't. It kind of is not. It's the truth. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, in some, some of the sections here were just very direct about the truth, too, and um, talking about things in the Soviet Union that you weren't allowed to talk about out loud at that time. Well, one thing that I think we, we shouldn't gloss over, even though it was only a minor part of this book, is um, the story of uh, the science of agriculture, which, of course, uh, Zenobia made fun of as metology. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and talking about how, you know, some scientist came up with some great new theories there, and as a result, all milk came from powder and all meat came from abroad. Right? And, and that was really talking about a very real and very serious thing that happened. Um, I don't know if you remember one of our earlier podcasts, we talked about the Holodomor, the, the famine in Ukraine. Yes, and it's, it is uh, very true. He's just pointing out the obvious of what, what the consequences uh, are after you take certain actions, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it points out this sort of absurdity of the corruption of scientific practice, right, where science becomes a matter of pleasing authorities instead of doing stuff that actually works. But then in Ukraine, this led to real-life consequences, and they, they implemented those uh, methods decided by the so-called scientists, and millions of people died. Absolutely. Um <clears throat> This is, uh, when I was reading uh, uh, that part of the uh, story that we're sharing here, it just reminded me that when you do things that are, frankly, dumb, they, they can uh, bring out dire consequences to the population. I don't know if, this, uh, if some of the uh, uh, actors in government in this case really understand that they create real chaos for a lot of people and they destroy a lot of people's lives. Uh, in, our, in our story here, we can see clearly that these friends that are getting together to uh, discuss these issues, they know exactly what's going on and that's why they're finding ways to express their feelings and tell the rest of the the people that can 
can have access to their thoughts to share with them and and see how how bad things are yet they understand that they can pay a price because of the uh, freedom of speech issue and they're looking for ways and they found ways to express themselves but you know it's it's very interesting that I'm very concerned even here in the states that our very own first amendment to is being challenged constantly by people in power and government and for some reason I am pretty convinced that most of them would rather get rid of it and not have us have that freedom of expression and put us in the exact same place where these uh, authors and and uh, people participating on this in this story find themselves. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. We, we see this circle of intellectuals and all these discussions sound absurd, right? And they're sort of jockeying for power and saying whatever works in order to advance themselves. And we can laugh at the silliness and absurdity of these games. But then these intellectuals in the, you know, center of government and the universities and stuff, yeah, they're, they're making decisions that affect the lives of millions of people. And if you can't discuss and argue and you know, debate what they're doing, their decisions just sort of get ratified by default. Yeah, and, and the effects of that are huge. They real tremendous power uh, with their decisions uh, among the people. But I am happy to see that, you know, in every case, in every story that we have shared, we have found people inside those systems that are able to get the message out somehow. They're able to get it out. And in many cases, either by writings like this, where they're not uh, directly uh, naming people, or by uh, humor, <laughs> which happens to work in almost every society, every uh, country. And, of course, in some of the previous stories we heard, too, we had some people find uh, ways to convince uh, uh, their government officials that, that they were on their side in order to get themselves freed. Yeah, yeah, but I, I get worried that, you know, a lot of this happened in sort of obviously many decades ago, times when there wasn't sort of 24-hour electronic monitoring of everything possible. You know, I, I, I have to wonder whether governments are getting more and more powerful these days and whether someone like Zinoviev uh, now would have easier or harder job trying to get his message out and, you know, get his novel snuck abroad and stuff like that. That is true. Did uh, was this author was he able to uh, survive the? Uh, I didn't. I didn't know that. Was he able to survive and and see a Soviet Union freer after the fall of uh, the Soviet Union? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so I just found his, his page here on Google, and he. Um, yeah, he actually lived until two thousand six. And it says he died in Moscow. So it looks like 
after the fall of communism, he was able to move back to his home. So, so I guess that's a somewhat happy ending. Yeah, um, wonderful. The, wonderful. This, this because... book actually got him exiled from the Soviet Union when he snuck it abroad and published it. Yes, I, and I, that was my question, because I already know that even though many people suffer under certain re- regimes, they, um, and they end up exiled, like in this case this author did, um, they still, inside their heart, they still miss their homeland. They crave their foods, their cultures, their, the things they grew up with. And it's good that he was able to move back to Moscow and, and experience, hopefully, a much better life. Yeah, yeah. but actually, since you mentioned culture, I think we should mention one more point we shouldn't gloss over. And that is that a lot of people say, when people like us criticize communism and socialism, that, hey, that's the other people's culture, and you can't criticize that. You're just a brainwashed American, and you think you're superior. But people who live under communism, they like it just as much as Americans like their system. And, you know, oh, yeah. But, yeah. but of course, you know, one thing this book exposes is all these leaders who live under communism, and they allow them loudly proclaim abroad, yes, communism is our culture, you know, stop interfering with us, we love this system. Actually, deep yeah. down, they, they understand exactly what's going on. Yes, and when I meant culture and missing the things they grew up with, is like, I, I personally, every time I go back to visit family in the village in Mexico, I crave some of the fruits that I grew up uh, eating that are not here, native fruits. You know, I crave some of the native dishes that uh, people just, I just can't find them around here. And and the simple, the simple uh, chatting of people walking around from from home to home without announcing yourself that you're coming over to visit or making an appointment with someone. Uh, yeah. It's just, well, it's just that's, that's what I'm talking about, not the culture yeah. of politics. Right. I was going to say, when you, when you go back to enjoy your native Mexican culture, uh, you probably don't stop by City Hall to enjoy the wonders of the native government as well that you've missed. All right, not not at all. I can, I don't. I pass by it, and I never never even think about that. It's the other things, the things that really matter to the everyday people, people, and 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 the things that that you that brings you memories. You know, as a as a child, for some reason, we all tend to to uh, fall in love with those things. Just look at an old photo. Every time we see an old, uh, uh, a few old photos, we fall back in love with them. And they didn't mean a whole lot back then, but uh, years later, they mean a lot to us. Well, this was another great uh, share, Eric, and... Thank you for doing that. It's definitely a different type of uh, story that we're sharing today, but it's uh, it's something uh, that can bring light to some of the same issues we have shared with you, which come down to the issues of freedom, lack of freedom, 
and how people uh, within those systems cope with it and how they try to get their mind into a different place and eventually uh, fight to defeat it or escape it. As usual, we've just scratched the surface here. The full book is over 800 pages, so we haven't come close to doing it justice. But if you enjoyed the passages we checked out today, be sure to check out the full novel, The Yawning Heights by Alexander Zinoviev, linked in our show notes at storiesofcommunism.com. And this has been your Story of Communism for today.